Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're going to learn about how horses learn, and it's brought to you by our, by our sponsor, Zilkeen. Horses are constantly learning, sometimes for better or worse, uh, but a lot of how we train and work with our horses is based on tradition rather than science. But by taking a scientific approach and adapting our training methods to how the horses actually experience the world, we can improve both equine welfare and our training outcomes. Are you intrigued? We hope so. Uh, tonight is a great opportunity for all of us to learn how our horses are learning. To help us out, we're joined uh, by horse behavior researcher, Dr. Cami Hiliski of the University of Kentucky. Dr. Hiliski is also president of the International Society of Equitation Science, and we are also joined by Dr. Jim Lowe, who is a technical veterinarian with the product Zilkeen. Welcome to both of you. Thank, Thank you, Cami. Dr. Hiliski, can you uh, please start out by telling us about your background with equine behavior? I was very lucky in that I was actually born to a family that had horses, uh, grew up on an Arabian farm where we raised and trained and showed horses, gave lessons, etc. Uh, I went to school in animal science, did my bachelor's and master's in that, and then just plain worked for a while in that field at Michigan State University. And then from 2000 to 2004, decided I really wanted to do my PhD specifically in horse behavior and welfare. And how did you become involved in the ISIS organization? Uh, that was, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly the first year that I went, was probably around 2005. I went to Italy because they were having a conference related very specifically to horse behavior and horse welfare. And I thought, okay, that's my world. That's where I fit. And when I was there, um, Paul McGreevy went about convincing me that we needed to make this into a, a, a full-fledged society. And so by 2007, we were hosting a conference at Michigan State and officially launched the society at that point. And what is the purpose of the organization or the mission statement of it? What we're really trying to do is utilize the science, utilize the evidence, to enhance what we know about horse behavior, how we can improve horse welfare, basically in anything that involves the horse-human interaction. And Dr. Lowe, can you share with us uh, a little bit about your interest in equine health and behavior? Uh, absolutely. So I uh, graduated from Texas A&M uh, College of Veterinary Medicine, and most of the 18 years or so I was in private practice. Um, I faced and, and, and looked at a lot of horses in, in, in various states um, and at very levels, various levels of um, what we were asking these horses to do. And it was, you know, in day-to-day -day interactions with both horses and their owners, I, I saw this entire spectrum of horse behavior, um, as well as horse handling, as well as philosophies on training. There was just, you know, everybody, it seemed, unfortunately, often was an expert, um, for better or worse. Uh, repeatedly, I found that the demeanor and behavior of these horses um, had an impact not only on the quality of the care I could provide, but also the efficiency that that care could be administered. Um, the more smoothly things went, um, obviously the welfare of the horse was enhanced, 
many times the stress level of the owners themselves was were enhanced. So certainly I could appreciate where um, a well acclimated focused horse um, certainly gave gave me an advantage and in turn gave uh, gave them and their owners an advantage as well. Uh, on a personal level, uh, my wife and I had an opportunity to raise a foal uh, from the day it was born through maturity. Um, and it was extremely interesting to see this process um, as she identified with us as her parents. And at times it seemed like she was scared of nothing, um, that she wasn't quite sure she was a horse because she had, she had no no focus, no base to uh, to believe that she might be a horse. But uh, what was ironic was we had another older mayor, and it was interesting to see their interactions and how many times, and it was a blessing for us, because we all know sometimes how these bottle babies can turn into, um, that older mayor was very quick to school her at times and kind of teach her, you know, how to be a horse and that maybe she should be scared. There were times that our mayor might spook at a loud noise and say bolt, and the baby didn't know it was supposed to bolt, but then after I watched that mayor for about 10 seconds, they figured, okay, well, I guess I might ought to bolt, and you would see it prance across the pasture. So it was just extremely interesting to see that dynamic. And and now as a technical services veterinarian working for a company uh, with a focus on equine behavior, um, we, we really ha have begun to appreciate the challenges that horses experience on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, really trying to put ourselves in the perspective of a horse um, and trying to identify what are those challenges, are there ways that we can perhaps help focus these horses more where they're better able to cope with these challenges. And then we certainly know that when we do that, um, there's work to show that horses can actually even learn better. So um, it's been a focus of our company and it continues to be very important for us. Okay. Well, before we get started, I want to remind everyone who's listening, if they've joined us before or if they're new, uh, let them know about our format. Uh, we're going to be starting with the questions that people sum submitted during registration. Uh, but if you're listening live and you have any questions or would like clarification on something the doctors have shared or a follow-up question, uh, you can enter that if you're listening with us online you can enter that into the chat window in front of you and we're gonna do our best to get to as many of your live questions as possible uh, we also have with uh, dr. Haliski that's uh, excellent base of horse behavior and then with dr. Lowe and his experience as a practitioner we have uh, medical knowledge so if you want to know about how pain or different medical conditions might affect how your horse is behaving and learning, we can get those uh, to those questions as well. So let's go ahead and uh, get started. Uh, Dr. Haliski, our, our first question was from Melanie in Apple Valley, California, and she wants to know how much do horses learn by watching other horses? She's referring specifically to things like trailer loading or leading. And this this is a really good question. Uh, it's one I talk about in my classes with my university students. Um, there's very little evidence that horses have a good grasp on observational learning. So if you simply load one horse in the trailer and then take it back out and then ask the other horse to load, odds are not tremendous that it learned just from watching that other horse. Now, if you load the one horse in that happens to be a buddy, it may have enough desire socially to be in there with that horse that it might go in. Or it may simply uh, perhaps draw a conclusion that this is a safe environment to go into. You know, also with leading, you may have a following response, but 
you know, certainly if we think about, all right, I'm going to take my trail horse and I'm going to back an L shape. And now my other horse is going to do that much more readily. I mean, that's, that's just not going to happen. So I think there's certain social behaviors. You know, if we talk about trying to locate, for example, where a water tank is, that's a very natural, horse-driven, instinctive thing to look for. So that's something that you will quite often see horses learn from one another. But in terms of skills that are kind of particular to humans, most of the time we don't see observational learning taking place. Dr. Haliski, is there any evidence that horses gain confidence from each other by having, say, an experienced horse try an obstacle first and then having the inexperienced horse follow? I mean, I, I think most of us would say we've had experience with that. You know, if you're, if you're wanting to train a really young horse, maybe a little fractious, and you take them on trail rides with an older, more mature horse, I know my dad and I always did that. Somebody would ride the older, more experienced horse, and we'd cross bridges, and we'd cross rivers, and do all sorts of things like that. And certainly the greener horse uh, benefited from wanting to be with the other horse, and you know, also kind of probably gaining some confidence. So that's, that's a different thing than truly learning by observing. We have a question, Dr. Haliski, from our live audience, and it's from Corey. And this is a question I think a lot of us uh, horse owners can relate to, especially those of us who ride in arenas that have uh, different things in them. So Corey says, or asks, do you have any suggestions for a horse that spooks at the same familiar thing in his own arena day after day, year after year? She says, my horse always spooks at the extra jumps stored just outside the arena rail, even though he's seen them every day for years. And, you know, it's always a little hard without seeing the exact situation. Um, sometimes in that scenario, I will spend a lot of time leading the horse. I, I've always found that horses more quickly gain confidence from me when I'm leading them as opposed to riding them. So I will walk between the horse and the scary object over and over and over until their fear response seems to get a little less and a little less. Another thing that I'll do sometimes when a horse has a fear response to something that quite honestly to me doesn't make any sense is I'll, I'll take them just to where they're starting to be scared, but they haven't made a full spook response yet. And as soon as they calm down a little bit, I'll give them a treat. And then I'll walk them up a little bit closer. And again, once they start to relax, I'll give them a treat. And I've been amazed in the last few years how fast those positive food reinforcements will get a horse over being scared of things. Our next question, Dr. Helsky, is from Wayne in Nova Scotia, Canada, and Wayne asks, what would some common mistakes made, what would be some common mistakes made in assuming that horses learn the same way people do? I think if we, if we think somewhat about the brain anatomy of horses compared to humans, um, humans have much more frontal brain, um, more cerebral type thinking. So problem solving, drawing conclusions, making rational thought processes, 
those fall more into the human domain, whereas that's a very, very tiny portion of the horse's brain. So the horse, on the other hand, has a really strong sensory perception. They're really in tune with smells and vision and hearing, um, in many ways more reactive to stimuli than we are. But if we if we start to make assumptions that they can problem solve through a situation, a lot of times we'll get angry at our horses because it's like, why are you being so stupid? Well, they're not being stupid. They're simply thinking like a horse. So that's, that's kind of how I would say on that is just over assuming what they're capable of. Uh, Dr. Lowe, we have a question from Rebecca in Richmond, Arizona, and Rebecca has a 19 and 20 year old horse that she moved from Kentucky to Arizona and says that in their new homes, both horses are tense and not eating well. They've lost weight. They don't seem to like the hay. Um, she sees them as being scared in their new environment. What recommendations might you have? Absolutely, and that's a that's a great question, and I think uh, it's going to be a common theme um, from my perspective that we always want to try to evaluate these horses for um, an underlying medical condition um, before we begin to um, look from the behavioral side of things. You know, certainly the behavioral evaluation can become much more challenging. Certainly, finding those answers or coming up with solutions are going to be sometimes even more challenging. Um, but certainly, I would recommend. Um, evaluating these horses and their overall health. Um, um, it's not rocket science, but there's a condition out there called ADR, which is the ain't doing right horse. And uh, I saw it a lot at Texas A&M. I saw it a lot in practice. And when you have horses that ain't doing right, um, there's some common things that, that happen very commonly. First and foremost, we want to evaluate that nutritional program. You know, certainly she commented they don't seem to like the hay. Uh, we would want to be confident about the hay source. We would want to be confident that um, their nutritional plane, that nutritional program is up to speed. Um, certainly the parasite control program, that's things that can be readily evaluated um, and uh, directly treated if there happens to be a problem there. Um, and as we look at these two horses, 19 and 20 years old, certainly we begin to think about uh, dental evaluation, uh, seeing if there's anything that needs to be going on there, because certainly with dental pain, with oral pain, that is certainly going to affect their demeanor. Um, certainly upon evaluating those common things, absolutely there is a correlation between stress and potential contributing to ulcerative disease. Um, once we've somewhat ruled out more of the common things, then certainly they can consult with their veterinarian and discuss some steps to perhaps evaluate uh, other body systems for potential problems. We have a question from our live audience uh, for Dr. Holisky. It's uh, from Terry. Uh, and Terry has a horse uh, that she's retired from cutting. The horse is 12 years old. And she started him on ranch trail obstacle challenges. In practice and competition where he can check the obstacles out ahead of time, he's fine with walking and trotting and loping over whatever comes in front of him. Um, but he's less confident when he can't see the obstacles first before competition. Do you have any tips for building his confidence in a setting where he doesn't get to practice or see obstacles first? I mean, the thing is, he's being a totally normal, natural horse. Um, I have a colleague, Angelo Teleton in Delaware, and he has done some really cool work looking at the advantages of letting horses at liberty 
explore jump courses before they jump. And the sad thing is they don't always have that opportunity, but when they do, they're, they're so much better at performing because they've already had that exploring chance. Um, now, to some degree, probably his confidence will increase as she continues to go to more, uh, you know, different, different sources, looking at different obstacles. Um, <laughs> but the big thing is he's, he's being a completely normal horse and that he's much more confident when he gets a chance to inspect them on his own. Uh, Dr. Heliski, we have a question from Glenna in North Plains, Oregon, and she would like you to comment on the need to teach horses something from both sides. She says they don't seem to effectively transfer learning when you've taught something on one side and then ask for it on the other. Um, so I am not amazing at brain anatomy, I'll be honest there, but there, there's a structure called the corpus callosum that in the human is very advanced. And so it's quite easy for us to transfer information that we learn on one side of our body to the other. Uh, with the horse, it's, it's much more, I guess you could say primitive. And so it doesn't seem to have that same ability. Now, I would also suspect that it has something to do with the fact that the horse has so much more in terms of monocular vision. So, you know, they're, they're a typical prey species in that they see a ton on the side, but not very much out in front in a binocular way. So to me, it makes sense that they're going to see something on the right side with the right eye, but that information doesn't automatically transfer to the left. And that's why we typically assume, you know, just because we got the horse used to the announcer booth going to the right, doesn't mean they will transfer that information when we reverse. Uh, we have a question from our live audience. Uh, it is from uh, Rukmali in Sri Lanka, who's listening live. And uh, uh, Rukmali would like to know, are there any behavior modifications that I can use to prevent my horse from wind sucking? And let's start with Dr. Lowe, if you want to touch on what wind sucking is and, and some of the, the medical things surrounding that or some suspicions we might have on what could be causing that. Well, I think I think we're all pretty confident that uh, that this is well. Let me put it this way: you know, I think we're pretty confident that there's the highly unlikely that there may be any specifics. Dr. Lipsky may be able to comment further on that. You know, it was always viewed for us um, as a a behavior problem, a vice, if you will, um, not necessarily, um, at least in my experience, you know, a learned behavior. So very difficult. We know certainly the effects of the wind sucking, and these are horses that will grasp um, on pipes or wood or whatever they can get a hold of and, and dramatically suck in air. Um, it does quite a bit of damage to their oral cavities, quite a lot of damage to their to their teeth, quite a lot of damage to stalls and fences, um, and can certainly be, begin to create some muscle damage there along their jaws and their neck. Um, so certainly, again, though, Something um, I guess I've always classified as a vice, but uh, Dr. Oleski may have much better information than I. I don't know if it's better. Um, I did have a PhD student, Carissa Wickens, that uh, did a really nice review article on cribbing and wind sucking and what we kind of scientifically know at this point. Um, one thing I would say is, 
you know, we're, we're trying to get away from the term stable bias gradually uh, and trying to use more the term of stereotypic behavior, some sort of abnormal repetitive behavior. And probably at some point, the horse's welfare was not awesome. Maybe they were in a stall a lot. Maybe they had no social interaction. Maybe they had no foraging opportunities. And a certain subset of horses come up with a behavior like cribbing or windsucking. And once they start, it is so incredibly hard to ever extinguish it. You know, you can do things like cribbing collars. You can do things like maybe run a hot wire on top of the fence post. Um, but most of these horses, as soon as they have the right opportunity, they'll go right back to it. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do here with a couple undergraduates this summer is hopefully try to educate people that maybe this is not really as horrible as what we've tended to think that it is. So, so, so Dr. L I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. Liske, so would we consider it a, a somewhat of a coping mechanism then for, for them? I mean, is it? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's okay. a perfect term. There, there yeah. seem to be certain horses Maybe they're more emotionally reactive. I don't know that we know that yet. Um, but yeah, they seem to develop this this coping mechanism, and you know, it's sort of like an addiction for them. So I I've seen um, some information that possibly it's related to gastric ulcers, or maybe the horses that crib are more likely to have gastric ulcers. Like, not sure. We're not sure if it's the chicken or the egg. Um, have you looked at that in the research as well, Dr. Haliski, the medical reasons for, for um, cribbing? Yeah, Amanda Waters and Christine Nickel out of the United Kingdom did a really, really nice study. And in, in that, with young horses who had started cribbing, they found a high percentage of gastric ulcers. Um, now, Carissa Wickens from University of Florida, she looked at a bunch of adult horses who were cribbing, and they had no more ulcers than any other horses. So, you know, it's, it's still a little bit of an unknown, but there is a suspicion that if you have gastric distress, um, this might be a mechanism that some horses try to work with to help with that pain. Okay. Uh Dr. Lowe, we have a question from Catherine in the, our live audience, and she wants to know if a calming agent could be used the first time a horse experiences something new and scary to make it easier the next time. And I know that's some research that you guys have done uh, with the Zilkeen product. What, what were the results of that? Well, yeah, certainly, certainly the risk in many calming products, shall we say, um, is is sedation or sedation or the slight loss of cognition, um, memory loss. So to use those types of things as a training aid to help a horse um, cope with a challenge or learn to um, handle such challenges where it's really um, not as recommended because again, they're really not able to focus and, and readily acknowledge it. So what we have found in working with alpha-cazozapine, which is the active ingredient in Zilkeen, because we don't have that sedation, we simply have a horse that, that focuses more um, and is able to maintain a more normal disposition. We certainly know there's been some work done by, uh, by Dr. Sue McDonald at the University of Pennsylvania um, 
in showing in, in one study in particular that horses, when they were um, shown challenges, basically challenges that replicated what they might experience walking through a vet clinic, uh, get, receiving injections, receiving a rectal thermometer um, application, she showed through the course of this study that horses that had been supplemented uh, with alpha-cazozapine, uh, when she brought these horses back at a later date, re-ran these, these various uh, tests she had put them through without supplementation, both subjectively and objectively, they seemed to have uh, scored much better and they acted um, as, as they had retained that information much better. So uh, I certainly believe anything we can do when a horse is exposed to that first challenge the first time to make it as um, um, smooth as possible, um, that is going to be both a positive moving forward as well. We have a question from our live audience for you, Dr. Hiliski. It's from Alicia. and. I just dealt with this this last weekend with my own two horses. Um, she wants to know, how do you recommend, recommend dealing with a herd-bound horse? She says she doesn't always have the option of riding with one companion and would like to trail ride on her own. Uh, I took my two, two of my three camping this last weekend, and, and my gelding had a meltdown when his mare left him <laughs> at camp. So, um, Alicia, I feel you. Uh, Dr. Haliski? And this is such a common problem. Um, and, it, you know, it's so strongly ingrained in the horse by nature to seek safety in numbers and especially to seek companionship from horses that it's used to. But sometimes that can be just a horse they met that morning on the horse trailer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I've always found over the years is the horse I'm actually riding, either out on the trail ride or at the show, that horse is fine. It's the horse left behind in the pasture or left behind in the stall at the show that's freaking out and going crazy. Um, you know, gradually over time, these things get better and better, but it's, it's, it's still a huge challenge. I'll tell you what I ended up doing when my daughter and I would both be showing horses at the same show. And this is going to sound really time consuming, but it worked like a charm. We would actually ask for stalls in separate barns. And so we would unload one horse, put it in the stall, go to the other barn and unload that horse. Uh, usually we were showing dressage, so it really wasn't a problem to request like different ride times. And we basically just treated the horses as if they were at two different locations. Um, and again, I understand that sounds like a real drag, but for us, it was what works. Other people end up just always turning their horses out only by themselves, and it's partly to avoid that very issue. So what are some of the concerns with uh, having them turned out by themselves? I know like with my... My horse, uh, he is happiest when he has a pasture companion. It actually really changes his behavior if he's, even though he share, shares a fence line, if he can't like have body contact and grooming with and playing with other horses, it makes him even worse. So um, is there some research about horses being housed together uh, and that being better for them? I mean, we do have a, a few studies out there there that, that confirm what many of us suspected, that horses very much crave group interaction. And, you know, visual is a good start, but when they can actually have tactile contact and do mutual grooming and do mutual fly swatting, 
I mean, if we're actually concerned about keeping our horses, quote, happy, social contact, turnout time, and foraging opportunities, uh, I'm willing to say are the three absolute biggest things. So I'm always trying to work around, okay, I still want to take my horses to competition. How can I do that and still let them live this natural life? Yeah, and how do you keep them from destroying their coats <laughs> and biting each other? <laughs> so that that's with mine being turned out together. We show with a few nicks every once in a while because that's just um, – when they're out together, they're always playing. So um, we have a question from Karen in our live audience. Dr. Hilski, I'll give this one to you. She wants to know, do you have any advice on how to gain uh, her horse's confidence and help him see her as a trustworthy leader while mounted? Is there any more background to that? That is uh, all that uh, she shared so far, but maybe Karen, if you're still listening, if you want to add some more details, we can uh, come back to that. Um, and, do, you want, and we'll, do you want me to take a stab at it or wait and see yeah, if she responds more? If you want to, if you want to jump in and, and share your ideas and then we'll see if, if Karen's out there and, and follows up. Because it, it does tie into a question um, that I think somebody else had written in earlier. Um, I mean, I will mention as an aside that this idea of leadership and dominance and being the alpha is under debate amongst equitation scientists. And actually one of our um, honorary fellows recently put together a position statement about how some of these terms are actually maybe causing us some problems and how we interact with our horses. Uh, certainly I think the concept of being extremely consistent in cues and very predictable about reinforcements will enhance that that thing that we're going to call in quotes trust. Um, you know, I, I use the term trust, but it's still sort of a nebulous thing with kind of fuzzy edges around it. But but certainly the more consistent we are, if the horse always knows that if we're working on showmanship skills, we're going to act the same every time they respond this way. Um, and, and there's also something that um, Andrew McLean's been working on in terms of attachment theory, and that maybe there really is something in the same way there is with children and mothers, um, with dogs and certain preferred owners, there, there may be a thing where horses actually do have a larger degree of attachment to certain people and those are the people that, you know, just have a little easier time getting getting a good performance out of them. Hmm. Yeah, I always figure my horses just like me because I feed them. <laughs> so it'd be <laughs> well, nice. Certainly, certainly feed is feed is a is a strong motivator that makes us a fairly important resource. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll see if if Karen has any uh, additional comments on her horse. Uh, I want to let everyone know that we just posted a link to a blog post that I wrote uh, a couple years ago about uh, dealing with my same herd-bound horse, um, Jack. He's a special boy. And uh, I, after going to one of the equitation science conferences, I came home and devised a happiness plan to help change Jack's life. And it really did help him. Um, but it 
it made me change and question how I was managing him and my expectations for management and what he really needed. So he's a sensitive, special guy. I love him. I bred him. I'm responsible for him. <laughs> so, um, but if, if you'd like to read that, uh, we've posted a, a link to that. Um, yeah, Karen, I, like that. I like that term, the happiness plan. The happiness plan. Yeah, I worked at a therapeutic riding center and, and every once in a while we'd get horses that got a little sour in the lesson program and, and we created happiness plans for them. And so that's kind of what inspired it. But then then the learning more about the science behind horse behavior and how they understand the world kind of it, it's helped me think bigger than than how I used to think. So. Uh, Karen has followed up and she said that her horse is great on the trail, um, but working at home, he gets frustrated with doing minor tasks, even just moving forward. So does that help Dr. Haliski? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> uh, I mean, there, like there are some horses that I've met before, um, especially for example, horses that were never asked to do arena work until later in life. They do sometimes seem to have a, a really challenging time with with thinking the arena is an important place to learn and do things. And I'm not sure I've come up with an amazing answer to that. You know, normally, most of the time, you're, a lot of our horses were starting with trail rides and arena work kind of at the same time. But sometimes if they've, you know, if you take that trail horse and now you say, all right, I want to work on jog to lope transitions, uh, it, it does sort of seem like they're saying, all right, this is just silly. So um, if I think of something better during our talk, I'll, I'll jump in with that. Yeah. And Dr. Hiliski, if you want to study a horse that is wonderful, except for in the arena, I have a young mare that I would be happy to enter <laughs> into a research project. <laughs> So, uh, Dr. Lowe, our next question is for you. It's from Josie in Moscow, Idaho, and she would like help with a spooky horse or one that keeps refusing jumps. Why might her horse not want to jump? Well, certainly uh, from from the perspective of some sort of medical issue, we always want to to think about vision issues. Certainly, um, that could potentially be an issue if we're having a little bit of bit of trouble. Uh, uh, Dr. Lesky had commented on uh, on how horses see, so certainly uh, we would want to evaluate that and make sure that that there was no issues there. Certainly, if there was any indication of past trauma to the head area or or, or something that was extremely traumatic, that could certainly explain some of that. As far as refusing to jump, um, first and foremost, uh, would probably be a musculoskeletal examination to make sure what we are asking this horse to do um, is 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 putting pressure, putting pain, putting discomfort in some particular area. And again, in evaluating these horses, we need to make sure that what we're asking them to do, um, they are not doing simply because it makes them very uncomfortable and not because they are just um, not choosing to follow our lead. So certainly want to rule out any sort of musculoskeletal pain, um, even checking um, as far as that oral cavity to make sure there's no problems there um, and making sure the, the vision is there. Those would be some, uh, probably some possible medical issues that might be causing it. And Dr. Haliski, any, uh, from a behaviorist perspective on, on refusing jumps, what might be going on? I mean, 
certainly the physical mentions that Dr. Lowe talked about are always important to assess. I know um, Dr. Sue McDonald, who you guys have worked with before, she does some great work on is it physical, is it psychological, or is it both? Uh, one thing I would mention is sometimes what happens is our timing of punishment ends up contributing to more refusal problems. You know, so often, you know, there, there are a handful of trainers that are really, really good with their timing. And so if that horse refuses and they don't end up punishing the mouth, but they do the crop at exactly the right time, they might actually improve that horse's um, desire to go over the jump. But a lot of times what happens is the horse veers off to avoid the jump. At the same time, the rider kind of loses balance they kind of jerk on the horse's mouth and then it's like two or three seconds later before they finally whack, whack, whack with the crop. And so at that point, a lot of times I don't think the horse has even associated the punishment with the actual refusal. So sometimes we accidentally create refusals that kind of continue to cycle worse and worse and worse. Dr. Hiliski, we have a question from Catherine in New York City, and Catherine wants to know if formerly uh, wild Mustangs pose unique challenges in training, which uh, if uh, Catherine is listening live, I, I have to say I chuckled when I saw you're from New York City and asking about Mustangs. I'm picturing a Mustang moving to Long Island. So, <laughs> I mean, certainly a horse that has uh, been wild will most likely uh, be more challenging to train. Now it depends a lot on the age of the horse, what their experiences out on the range were. You know, there are some places where the wild horses actually have a fair bit of human exposure. And then there's other places they might have never seen a human until they're actually captured and, and put through the auction. Um, the ones that I have worked with, and it's only a small number, what I found was initially they were extremely fearful. Uh, again, if we use that nebulous term, trust, very not trusting. But I also found them to learn extremely quickly once we got past that hurdle. Um, you know, on the one hand, they had spent so many times exposed to so many different obstacles out in the wild that there were a lot of things like out on the trail that they just thought nothing of where I might have to train a, a, a quote normal horse to, you know, go through a river or over an obstacle. So, you know, for most of them, the, the obstacles are not insurmountable. And certainly if you watch extreme Mustang makeover and some of these other projects, you'll see how far people can come with the horses in a very short amount of time. Dr. Hiliski, do you want to touch a little bit about or on using uh, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, and punishment in in teaching horses and how they learn in response to those different methods or applications, I guess? Sure. I, I'm happy to do that. Uh, I would also mention it's close to an hour-long lecture in my normal class that <laughs> <Okay>. I teach. <laughs> uh, you know, if we talk about reinforcement, we're talking about something that increases the frequency of a behavior. If we talk about a punishment, we're talking about something that decreases the frequency of a behavior. Now, if we talk a positive reinforcement, to me, a real easy example is you have a horse that's a little bit hard to catch, 
And so every time you go out to the pasture and they let you catch them, you give them a little treat. And most horses find that rewarding enough that they get easier and easier to catch over time. Negative reinforcement, sometimes still people think of as, as a bad thing, but really we use it so much in training horses. Um, you know, if we're trying to teach a foal to lead, we pull on the halter and lead rope. As soon as they take a step forward, we release that pressure. That is their reward. And so gradually, it doesn't take very many repetitions before they start leading in a quick response to that halter pressure. The same if you're teaching a horse to move forward off your leg. You squeeze your legs, they move forward, you release your leg pressure. Um, punishment. I'm not going to differentiate between positive and negative because that gets real crazy. But if I use a common example, if I have a yearling stud colt that keeps trying to bite me uh, when I'm leading him, I might carry a dressage whip with me, and every time he tries to bite, I pop him on the chest. Um, and if my timing is correct, he'll gradually start to try to bite less and less. So that's a crash course in those three categories. <laughs> Um, and kind of the take home that I, that I always try to get across to the students, negative reinforcement is not bad. In fact, it's the main way we train horses. Positive reinforcement is also not bad and we probably don't use it enough. Okay. And so the positive reinforcement, and we did have several questions on using treats in training and you, you brought up treats, uh, earlier in our talk, uh, is it okay to be giving our horses treats as a positive reinforcement? I totally believe it is. I, I know that there are still people out there that will argue with me, and I'm okay with that. Um, you know, there's a handful of horses that are very, very oral already. Uh, let's say some of our stallion horses, and perhaps we should not be using treats in those cases. But most horses, you can sort of teach them some boundaries about how the treats are going to work. And, you know, if, for example, if they're pushy or if they're grabbing at your sleeve, they're not going to get a treat. But, you know, if, for example, I'm putting a horse into a trailer, probably at least the first dozen times, I'm going to give them a treat once they get in the trailer. Um, if I'm trying to teach a horse something scary, like maybe I'm, maybe I'm teaching them to cross a tarp. And so the first few steps they take onto the tarp, I give them a treat. And then I let them take a couple more steps and I give them a treat. And we did a couple projects at Michigan State and we didn't necessarily found it made a huge difference in teaching them to cross the tarp. But when we brought them back a year and a half later, we found that the ones we taught with a treat were much better at doing the task than the ones we just taught the regular way. Uh, Dr. Lowe, our next question is for you. It's from Kim in Federal Way, Washington. And Kim wants to know, in what percentage of horses would you estimate that poor eyesight is a reason for a behavior problem? Well, a really good question. And, and quite honestly, to uh, a thorough, complete ocular evaluation and, and grading vision quality is, is, a, is rather intensive and certainly can acquire, require specialized tools, certainly training that not every horse owner is going to have exposure to or access to. So I think the likelihood is that uh, 
as in many conditions, just due to the nature of the quality of diagnostics sometimes available, it probably goes underdiagnosed, uh, probably quite significantly uh, to what percentage um, I wouldn't even pretend to uh, to guess. And and I think it 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 it's, it would be naive to think that if a horse is not seen well, um, that it's not going to contribute to some level of spookiness. So certainly it it goes back to some of our previous conversations uh, with head shyness, spookiness, etc. We really want to rule out any underlying medical problems um, before we brand it um, as, as some sort of uh, behavioral issue per se. We have a question, Dr. Holisky, from our live audience. Jerry wants to know about her nine-year-old horse that refuses to cross the water. He won't step over it or jump it. How can she help him learn how to cross water without reinforcing his fear of it? And I'm going to do what I would do with a young horse that I had in for training. Um, I would start typically with with small, easy obstacles, but ones that are as wide as possible. So, you know, something that's fairly shallow and is not going to be slippery, but has a lot of width to it so that it's not very easy for the horse to dive around it. Um, you know, if you happen to be near a small, small stream, that works great. The vast majority of horses, if they can follow a mature horse that's very comfortable with water crossing, they will almost every time want to get to be with that other horse. Um, now, you have to be ready because if this horse has an established fear of water that maybe has been accidentally reinforced, they're, they're quite possibly going to try to leap over that small stream. And I've seen an awful lot of people get left behind when that horse tries to jump over the water. Um, so it's kind of, you know, like so many things, if, if you can shape it, you know, you start with the easiest possible type of obstacle and, and, and then you build it. And I know that, you know, with water obstacles, that's not hard because a lot of times all we have handy is this kind of deep, really cold, fast rushing river right near us or whatever. But if we can break it down into pieces, and if we can use a buddy horse, a lot of times we can overcome that fear that the animal has. And sometimes you just have to get your muck boots on and a long lead rope and some treats. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I totally, if I'm riding a green horse, I totally plan that my shoes and boots will be wet if I am teaching water crossing. Yeah, we, uh, on and, this camp, you know, um, on this camping trip I was on, we taught uh, several of the horses to cross water for the first time. It was a, a great place to do it. So, yeah, but we got wet and the water was really cold. <laughs> so, yeah. um, no. doc Dr. Hillisky, we have a question from Tanya in Illinois. And Tanya wants to know if there's an appropriate length of time to work on a new concept with a horse during a training session. And does that vary by age? Uh, I, I mean, I, I would say it varies more by horse-to-horse -horse individuality than age, but if you have yearlings or young two-year-olds, let's say, or especially weanlings, uh, you're not going to spend as much time on any one concept as if you're dealing with a five or six or seven-year-old. You know, if, 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 we're, if we're halter breaking our, our foals out at the farm, we might do 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the afternoon. We're going to keep those sessions really, really short. 
Um, if I'm working with a four-year-old that I've had in training for 60 days, I might be very comfortable with a 45-minute riding session, although I'm going to throw a whole bunch of different things in there, not just work them on only, you know, you don't spend the whole 45 minutes just working on the sliding stop, let's say. Um, and, and one concept that quite a few of the equitation science people will talk about is get three good repetitions of something and then move on to something else for a while. So that that seems to be, you know, and it, even if you're teaching a horse to go onto a horse trailer and they're really scared of it, I know this was always hard for me to learn as a kid, but you can't just put the scared horse onto the trailer and then go. Once they're on, you've got to back them off and do it again, even though sometimes it's the last thing in the world you want to do. Mm -hmm. Um. We have a question from Cindy in Wisconsin, Dr. Holisky, and she wants to know how do you go about extinguishing a behavior? She said that in teaching her horse to step on frisbees, now the mare wants to step on anything she directs her to. So sometimes our trick training can go awry. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, as an example, I think clicker training with positive reinforcement is pretty cool. Sometimes you get horses especially like the ones that are real equine clowns that they start volunteering all sorts of behaviors to try to get treats and they also tend to be the ones that are hard to extinguish on something like this uh -huh. um, you know she's going to have to be very diligent if she truly wants to extinguish it which it sounds like she does um, she's going to have to just totally ignore when that horse steps on things um, you know, no treats, no laughter, no smile. She's going to have to be as completely non-reactive as possible. And it depends a lot on the horse how long it takes to extinguish. But, you know, if sometimes horses feed off of things that we don't understand. And, you know, we, we've certainly seen children do this. We've certainly seen dogs do this where just because we laugh at a behavior, they may find that reinforcing enough to keep doing it. Um, so it, it sounds like this horse is gonna take longer than average to extinguish, but it would be really surprising if she totally stops any form of positive reinforcement that it wouldn't stop doing that. We have a question from our live audience. Laura uh, would like to know about laid back, mellow broodmares and if they tend to raise foals that are also mellow and can foals that maybe didn't get the discipline they should have early in life be more difficult to train as adults? Dr. Heliski? Well, did you want to have Dr. Lowe work on that for a bit? Oh, Dr. Lowe, do you have any, any thoughts on, uh, on mellow well, mares? I, you know, it, it would be purely subjective, but I, I think if I had to think back, I would certainly begin to appreciate. I think the certainly I think the demeanor of the mare will certainly affect that demeanor, that foal. Um, I think certainly it will promote um, a certain level of expectation of behavior in that mare. Um, but again, that's just purely purely subjective and not by any way research related. So Dr. Heliski, um, is there some research in that area? Uh, th there's been a little bit. Um, there's a group 
in Denmark that Jana Christensen is part of. And she, she's shown, as one example, if you have a mayor that, that is pretty chill and, you know, you work around that mayor and you show her scary things uh, and you have her cross scary objects, that mellow mare will also tend to have a foal that learns those things really quickly. Now, is that a genetic thing that genetically she's mellow and she produced a mellow foal? Or is it experiential and it's the environment and because she's had all this positive interaction with humans, um, you know, that's what her foal picks up on. And, and chances are like so many other things, the nature and nurture have sort of a balance and, and, and are, are largely both contributing. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, certainly some of our more nervous mares over the years, we had to work a lot harder with those foals to get them to not be so nervous also. Uh, we have a question from our live audience uh, for Dr. Lowe. Dr. Lowe, Allison wants to know how horses can be worked with to make your job as a vet easier and, and to keep everyone <laughs> safe while they're, they're seeing the vet. Um, those of us that have vet-shy horses, uh, maybe we could have done things differently in the beginning. Yeah, you know, and I... Yeah, I think um, much of it just stems from the normal handling practices, you know, that uh, that you would expect your veterinarian to have to. If you have a horse that doesn't like its feet being picked up, um, but then you have a horse that needs a sole abscess evaluated, that's a problem. So, you know, we need to, from a very early age, be handling these horses' feet, picking them up, getting them very comfortable with that, not just for the veterinarian's sake, but our farrier's sake and for your sake when you're uh, uh, cleaning out the bottoms of those feet. I think the same thing to handle these horses as much as you can, you know, running your hands up and down their necks where very often we're likely to give uh, vaccination, for instance, uh, certainly the way, you know, many times when we're evaluating the heads of these horses, they are especially head shy and it could be simply because they've not developed um, a comfort level with that. Um, the trailering, of course, there's nothing worse than that a horse that needs medical care and really needs to be brought to a facility, uh, but we can't load them on a trailer. So trying to think ahead to various um, actions, not only as far as handling the animal, but management actions, um, I think are, are, are absolutely um, expected and, and will help. Um, vaccinations and needle shyness, it's very easily to take up a plastic syringe that has nothing in it and no needle on it and begin to show that horse that. And as you're out there grooming it, you know, tapping it on the neck, simulating those types of injections to get them a little bit more comfortable uh, with things like that. Um, so again, I think it's just repetition and, and certainly most horse owners are very comfortable with the ways veterinarians manipulate their horses, what they're going to be asking them to do. And, and certainly, so the more they can simulate that action to some degree, um, it's going to provide a much more, uh, again, going back to the ease, efficiency, and the quality of that care we can provide to that horse. Um, and Jack is getting a lot of uh, mentions tonight, but so my <laughs> horse Jack is extremely, like, so if you, Dr. Lowe, came to give him a vaccine, he would smell you mm -hmm. from across the property and he, he would be uninterested in having you vaccinate him. But I can go up to him and pinch his neck mm -hmm. and do an injection on him, no problem. Um, so 
Dr. Haliski, is there a difference in who's doing it, or does that come back to the atta attachment th theory research with, with the horses? And and my vet's very, very nice to him. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, there, there's a lot of factors that go into some of these vet-shy or needle-shy types of horses. Um, you know, some of it is if they've had a bad experience with a vet at some point, it can be it can be the olive-colored overalls. It can be the smell of Nova sand. Um, you know, there's there's other factors that don't jump out to us that are completely blatantly obvious to a horse. Mm -hmm. And so maybe as a weanling, if they had to have seven straight days of antibiotic shots, they don't think this person is as awesome as we do. Um, I know I've had a couple super, super nervous. They happen to be Arabian mares. Um, and and so right from the start, when the vet first started coming out, I said, okay, here's a 14-year-old mare. She already has a history of this, this, and this. I said, can you humor me and give her treats before you even start doing anything? And luckily, my vet didn't even roll her eyes or anything. She went ahead, sure, why not? And so, you know, she just spent some time scratching at her neck and giving her treats. And, you know, that first time, all it was was, doing a heart rate and a temperature and so then we waited a while before she had to do anything more dramatic so again we just did it as shaping and sure it cost me a little more money to have more visits but for me it was worth it in in the long run so dr Haliski, we um, received several questions asking about different personality types and horses um, and before we conclude for the evening do you do you have any insight on how different personalities might learn different are there some horses that are just smarter than others uh, or more receptive to learning and that's another one of those questions that we could take a lot of time to answer um, we know there are studies out there where the more emotionally reactive horses, and I'm going to use as an example some of the Arabians, some of the thoroughbreds, um, they will, like things like learning a maze, they will take longer to learn. But having ridden a lot of those horses, I feel like there's certain things they actually learn better, and I feel like their retention of a task is sometimes just absolutely like off the charts amazing um, you know I, I think there's a lot with different types of horses temperaments matching with different riders better uh, but it, it's hard for me to say oh here's here's a dumb horse or here's a super crazy smart horse and of course most of us have encountered like let's say a Shetland pony that is a rocket scientist doesn't necessarily want to learn the things that we want them to learn so yeah, personality and learning ability, it, it's really a, a complex topic. Well, we are just about out of time. Before we go, I wanna check in with both of you and, and see what is it that you hope people took from this evening's conversation. Uh, let's go ahead and start with you, Dr. Lowe. Yeah, thank you, and uh, I, I appreciate you, you having me. I know I've certainly learned quite a bit. I, I think the take home message from my perspective is is that we certainly evaluate these horses for uh, potential medical issues um, and, and not just immediately chalk them up as, as poor manners or poor training or stubbornness or whatever term you may want to use. I think it's, it's very important that we make sure we do that. Um, and again, I think really to focus on the fact that the, 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 
the more well-trained, the more well-behaved, the more focused these horses are, um, the entire veterinary experience is just such a much more pleasant uh, period. Um, and again, it really serves to provide a, a better level of care that can be administered to these animals uh, and a more efficient level of care that can be administered to these animals. Okay. And Dr. Heliski? Uh, I mean, what I mostly appreciate is that there were so many people intrigued enough by horse behavior to listen in tonight, um, you know, striving to understand our horses better and think about how they learn goes miles and miles towards enhancing uh, their welfare and basically their life experience. So hopefully people continue with that. Well, thank you. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for tonight. I want to thank both Dr. Holisky and Dr. Lowe for joining us. Also, I want to go ahead and thank our sponsor, Zilkeen, uh, for bringing this event to everyone for free tonight and to everyone who submitted questions both during registration and while listening live. Uh, join us next month. We're going to be talking about equine genetic diseases. It should be an interesting one. Uh, until then, from all of us here at The Horse, have a great night.